0: We're back and fresh out of Cyber Week, and we've got plenty of cybersecurity news. We're going to update you on all the noise around Bloomberg, election security, and APTs that are causing a stir.
1: In our interview, we talk with venture capitalist and former NSA pentester who has plenty to say about his experience at all points of his career.
0: A double dose of infosec news. Curiosity is back. Let's go. Welcome back to Securiosity. I am your co-host, Greg Otto.
1: And I'm Jen Daniel. Greg, are you fully recovered from DC Cyber Week?
0: Uh, fully back to 100%. Caught some Zs after talking about protecting ones and zeros from sun up to sun down. What about your panel up in Canada?
1: Canada was really cold, and um, there's definitely a budding cybersecurity scene there, um, and even some quantum dots.
0: Interesting. Definitely want to dig into that in the future. but. What else did you like uh, during the week? We didn't really get to talk about DC Cyber Week uh, on the podcast too much, so I'd love to hear uh, about all the things that you experienced.
1: Yeah, so I went to an event called CyberTunity and saw um, about a dozen companies at a really early stage showcase what they're doing, and then, of course, I went to CyberTalks.
0: Very nice. Uh, So Zero Day Con was really, really cool, really appreciated uh, a lot of the talks that I saw there. I hosted a very interesting panel during CompTIA's event that we talked about privacy law, which is definitely something that we're going to keep talking about. I mean, we could have our own separate podcast just on that if we wanted to. But all of the conversations that we had, and and DC Cyber Talks was great. Got to talk to Rob Joyce, got to talk to Dan Coates, got to talk to uh, Sabu of infamous um, Anonymous fame yeah. so that was that was definitely awesome to have uh, a great event talk to a lot of different people over the week and I thank everybody that either came out attended sponsored a great event uh, and great participation uh, always love doing these things
1: so that sounds pretty cool um so there's been a lot of news over the past couple weeks
0: yeah of course uh when does infosec ever take a day off when it comes to the news so i um, excited to talk about the things that have happened
1: so let's get it to it. So the director of national intelligence, Dan Coates, told Greg that he's seen no evidence of Chinese actors tampering with motherboards made by Supermicro computer. Becoming the latest national security official to question a Bloomberg report that stated the company was the victim of a supply chain hack. The comments were the first of a number of further comments on the story, with Apple CEO Tim Cook calling on Bloomberg to retract the story. Then earlier this week, Supermicro said it's conducting an investigation into the story's claims. In a letter sent to customers last week, executives said the company is undergoing a complicated and time-consuming review to address the claims made in the article. Sounds like things have gone from bad to worse for Bloomberg.
0: Yeah, um, the the story is is really taking heat. Like it hasn't gone away since the beginning of the month. And uh, you know, I talked to Dan Coates, who became the the latest top-level like security-minded government official to say. We haven't seen anything about this. And then I think it was 24 hours later, Tim Cook and uh, Andy Jassy, who Andy Jassy is the executive in charge at Amazon of AWS, who also tweeted out that they need to retract this. There is nothing that shows there is evidence of what Bloomberg is talking about. And then, yeah, in in a letter that was in a filing uh, that the company made to the SEC, Supermicro said basically that look, we don't believe any of this, but just because we have a responsibility to investors and to shareholders, we're gonna turn our company upside down to look for this. And that to me seems to be, and the letter, I I should back up, the letter also said that we do not expect to find anything. However, we're going to do it anyway. I think that this is a precursor to an eventual lawsuit. At least from Supermicro, because Supermicro, their, their stock took a massive hit once this story dropped and really hasn't recovered. And that is going to be the basis for a lawsuit. Bloomberg has stood by their story. There was a little bit of a veil lifted. There was an article in The Washington Post that said other Bloomberg reporters have now been assigned to the story to kind of like re-report the story, okay. which is, you know, not a great look, but I think – I mean, Bloomberg has to do some sort of due diligence on top now since they are taking so much heat. But yeah, it, it's not looking good for the story. I feel like, and, and there was a good point in the Washington Post story that said look, the best journalism can be reverse engineered. We've thrown people at this story, the New York Times has thrown people at this story. Other outlets, uh, other outlets that span the gamut between right. <laughs> between yeah, the are, th- are throwing yeah. people to try to figure this out, and we're all coming up with zero as as far as a you know a, a confirmation. So look, we're going to keep digging, but you, you can't find something that doesn't exist. Right. So that's it, it's 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 really tough, and it's really not looking great for this. Story. I I, I'm trying to figure out where the angle is to go from here, other than just twiddling our thumbs and waiting for the lawsuits to come in. Because from an infosec perspective, it just goes back to the idea that yeah, this is plausible, but this is not happening right now. And there's more damage being done throwing this out there to say this is happening and it being false than it actually being true.
1: How does a story like this that seems not to be true get through a newspaper process.
0: I can't speak for Bloomberg's internal reviews. They said they had uh, you know lawyers look over the story um, but I think that you know you trust your reporters inside internally. you never want to turn around to a reporter that you've trusted with other stories before and say this is completely false. Um, at bigger publications like Bloomberg, normally there are fact checkers and research assistants that when a story is going in a, in a glossy magazine will do more due diligence and call up sources and go through the process to like double check everything. Yeah. The sources that were named in this story say they never got any of those type of calls, which is what you would expect from a bigger publication that puts out a glossy magazine like Bloomberg, a, a lot of glossy magazines, because of the way that they process their stories, go through this process where if a story's done, then it goes through everything fact-checking wise, and there are fact-checkers employed that pick up the phones and call everybody that is quoted in stories to say, "You you said this right?" and they get a yes and move on, and the story moves through production. That apparently didn't happen, um, as far as the 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 in further internal way that Bloomberg does their reporting. I, I'm not a media reporter, so sure. I don't get into the internals on that side. But, you know, you, you from just from a journalistic perspective, you double check, you triple check, you you make sure. And we've talked about it before. Zach Whitaker at TechCrunch wrote an article about how this is Th- sort of the there's always this fundamental risk in national security reporting where you're going to have unnamed sources because you're dealing a, a lot of the times with classified information and if this story is to be true a lot of this was very classified and very car uh compartmentalized information so th- th- there m- could be some truth to it but There are just a lot of unnamed sources. And also, I think by now there's been so much heat on the story that one of those unnamed sources, if it was really true and really wanted wanted to put it out there for the greater good, would have come forward by now and said, okay, everybody calm down. Yes, this is in fact a, a real thing, and we need to figure out how to fix this moving forward. We haven't seen that. So, again, it's just not... It's just not holding up to scrutiny very well at all. Fascinating. So former NSA director Michael Rogers' decision to join an Israeli company as an advisor has drawn strong criticism from ex-NSAers. Teammate, which was founded by an Israeli intelligence officer, focuses on finding investments for promising cybersecurity technologies, aka they're a venture capital firm. Uh, while previous NSA directors have gone on to lucrative private sector careers, teammates' strong ties to Israeli intelligence uh, stands apart from some of the other moves that ex-NSA directors have uh, taken in their private lives. Uh, there is no clear line. Robert Lee, a former NSA employee, uh, Robert now currently runs Dragos, told Cyberscoop that the former director, of one of the most critical intelligence agencies joining a foreign company headed by the ex-head of foreign intelligence agencies crosses whatever line exists, in his opinion. Jen, is this cool with you or not?
1: So I would have said if he was joining a cybersecurity company, I would have said not cool um, and shouldn't be allowed. But given that it's a venture capital firm, and given that certainly U.S.-based companies use Israeli technology and Israeli cybersecurity companies, I don't really see a big problem with this. I think that maybe he can provide us some better insight into, um, you know, the investments his company's making, but maybe they'll make better decisions, maybe we'll see better cybersecurity technology come out because of it.
0: Yeah, here's where for me this gets shady, in that being in a position, uh, being the NSA director, you obviously have clearance to the highest of the high classified information there is it it is just human nature to be like hmm i see company x and their technology could help us with program y so i'm i, I may not vocalize that externally but internally i am going to help this board make that decision and funnel money into those companies. Like the, the – the, Seems like a great idea. Well, the reliance on classified information but operating on it in a private job is a okay. bit shady to me. So How maybe you should
1: have joined InkyTel. In,
0: right. In a vacuum, though, in, in a mm-hmm. vacuum, that scenario that I just – uh, described there is questionable. However, this is the beltway. This is the swamp, for lack of a better term. Yeah. This is the, 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 unfortunately, this is the way that a lot of business operates. And, it, it, and I shouldn't even say, it's not even just a beltway thing. Like, I, it, it's just a government technology thing. This is what companies pay for when they take high profile and talented people from the public sector and bring them into the private sector. They want that knowledge. Right. They want that knowledge. So maybe there needs to be different laws or different mandates on the way that all of this works. But yeah, so I would say this is, it's a bit shady, but I don't think it's, it's not the end of the world, like he's not walking, he's not hoarding NSA information and walking, in right. uh, so, walking into, walking into teammate and going, to figure it out, guys, make the companies do this.
1: Yeah, and so I would say in reality, an advisor to a venture capital firm, you know, has a couple functions. One, it's it's marketing. Um, so the ability to point as you're raising money that you have this amazing advisor on your board. Um, and then two, it's sort of to shape the technology sectors that you're going after So I don't think you should expect that on a day-to-day basis he's working with any companies or he's really seen any of the companies come through. I think he's probably helping the VC firm pick, you know, these are the areas in cybersecurity we're going to focus on, not like actual, like hands-on with companies. Right. So to Russia, a Russian government-owned research lab is behind malware tools used to shut down a Saudi petrochemical plant. FireEye released the first public attribution of tools used by the group behind the dangerous TRISIS malware, which is tailored to disrupt safety systems at industrial plants. FireEye was able to gather attribution clues from a malware testing environment linked to a Russian lab due to what happened to be a lax operational security precaution. Greg, is this out of left field?
0: Uh, A little bit as far as the actual attribution because just looking at the details that were out there and the fact that it was a Saudi petrochemical plant and we've seen some of these actors do similar things, a lot of people had an educated guess that it was Iranian or that right. it was something Middle Eastern, obviously due to the targets and just the the way that everything went down. And that doesn't seem to be the case. Um, it's really interesting that uh, – this was tied back to a very specific center, I believe it is called the Center or Institute for mechanics or I I, I just botched that, but it's it's something that would make you go, whoa, that's that's hmm. very obtuse and clearly shrouded to hide its real motives and real intentions. But yeah, Russia uh, and Iran are allies on this type of stuff. So I can't say that they've been working together. There's been no public evidence of that. But I think it's really, really interesting that, once again, Russia is top of mind when it comes to industrial control systems malware.
1: Scary time.
0: So U.S. Cyber Command has targeted individuals associated with influence campaigns, by sending direct messages in an effort to deter them from spreading propaganda (laughs) and fake information. The report comes days after the government unveiled the first criminal charges linked to an attempted interference in next month's midterm elections. U.S. Cyber Command has also sent teams to Europe in an effort to help allies fight Russian intrusion. So, Jen, the first known Cyber Command missions that have come out, at least for this year, they were sliding into DMs. (laughs) Does that sound
1: effective? It doesn't. Um, I think it's actually really funny, and I still go back to um, you can't really mess with the election with fake propaganda. If people would just stop getting the news off Facebook,
0: I can't believe this is kind of the first opening salvo in offensive hacking. Like or we, we we slid into the DMs. Really know what it is. Well, it's. It's just interesting to me that this is even – like, okay, this may only be one part of a greater – I'm sure it is. Of a greater operation, which fine. I still don't think that it's all that effective. Like, I understand that it's not just – it's not just sending somebody a private message going, we see you. Like, they're sending (laughs) private messages to be like, uh, do you want to really think about what you're doing here? Like, you're causing – like look what you're supporting, look what you're causing out in the world. Like you're not you're not doing good things, but which if I, I was feel like
1: planning not to do good things, I'd be like, "Great, it's working." Yeah, right, right.
0: <laughs> and then that's what I was getting at. Twitter. It's almost it's almost one of those things where it's like, "Okay, I get that message," and it's like, "Well, I don't care." Like Russia has been pretty brazen about what they have been doing, yeah. and I feel like those operators in Russia are just going to be like okay, you send me a note saying knock it off, I'm, I'm going to go keep doing what I'm doing because right. there's a check attached to it. Like, it's their job. Like, they're not going to stop. Cause, and I don't really think that there is a morality check there because everybody knows what they're signing up for at this point. It, right. There's been tons of news internationally about what the Internet Research Agency does. So... Anybody signing up to work for them knows what they're getting into. <laughs> so I, I don't think that they care. Like, yeah. I just – like, the – the we, we spend billions of dollars talking about AI and machine learning. Mm-hmm. And there's the vulnerabilities, equities process. And we spend so much time worrying about what zero days that we're sitting on from a government perspective. And if we're going to sit on them, now, we'll, now would be an opportune time to use them. But instead, we're just – we're literally sending direct messages like – I understand that that is part of it i I just i i don't think it's effective
1: i mean look right they need to appear like they're solving this problem um and so it's out in the news i can't imagine this is the only thing they're doing so speaking of the pentagon the defense department confirmed a breach of its travel management system that exposed the personally identifiable information of defense personnel pentagon officials discovered the breach on october 4th and an investigation into the scope and impact is ongoing The breach hit a single commercial vendor that did a small percentage of the travel management work for the Pentagon, a reminder that defense contractors continue to draw fierce interest from hackers. Greg, this sounds small. Any reason this is particularly interesting?
0: Yeah, it's interesting to me because this type of work was on the first round of Hack the Pentagon. Like, Hack the Pentagon uh, had a a bunch of systems that were – you know poked into and part of it was travel front facing travel websites so when it's something like this i go well wait a minute like how, how is this a thing no still right yes. and and look there are other there are tons of contractors that deal with this and obviously hack the pentagon isn't going to you know circle everybody and go okay you're part of this program just by working With us. However, it just goes to show that even crowdsourced security has its not downfalls, but there are limits to it. And obviously, there just needs to be more done to pay attention to it, not just from the DOD. Obviously, the DOD is paying attention to it, but the contractors as well. Like, if you're the defense industrial base and you're not thinking about this, you're so far behind that you're actually, like, indirectly affecting national security. Like, I'm sure the people that are affected by this are, are. not happy, even though I think it was only like 30,000, which is a small number for DOD. Um,
1: Depends on who those 30,000 people are. Right,
0: right. So speaking of that, and, and the reason why this is particularly interesting is earlier this week, the DOD announced plans to expand its signature bug bounty program, awarding three new contracts Wednesday to bolster the Hack the Pentagon initiative. DOD tapped cybersecurity firms SYNAC. HackerOne and BugCrowd to provide vetted hackers for continual assessments of defense websites, hardware, and physical systems through a three-year, $34 million contract package. Hack the Pentagon started in 2016 and crowdsources cybersecurity expertise from white hat hackers to find and address vulnerabilities in defense department networks for cash rewards. So, Jen, this can only be regarded as a positive now, right?
1: I think this is completely positive, and This needs to happen. It needs to happen all the time.
0: Yeah, uh, going back to the travel thing, this this is shows <laughs> it, this shows that the program need obviously yeah. needs to be expanded. And I, I think that we should pay attention to the fact that it's not only just websites now; it's hardware and physical systems. That is a that's a significant step up. We're just not talking about oh, here's a front-facing base website where we can try to mess with it through a cross-site scripting attack or an SQL injection. Like, no. Like, now we're talking hardware and physical systems, so we've upped the game a little bit. And I think that that is really, really important because the DoD is so big, and there are all these contractors out here uh, that obviously are not always protecting their stuff. So (laughs) it's really, really interesting to take it another step to go, okay, we're not just talking about websites here, we're talking about hardware and physical systems. It is a big step up and significant, and good for the DOD for recognizing that with this contract.
1: I still don't think $34 million is enough, though. So let's go to my least favorite topic, the latest <laughs> in election security news, and it's not great. Someone is reportedly selling 2018 voter registration records from 19 states on an underground hacker forum. A report from Anomaly and Intel 471 describes a form of advertising the voter data, ranging in price from $150 to $12,500 per state. It's not clear how the voter rolls were obtained, but it should be noted that states often make such data freely available to academics, journalists, and political organizations. And researchers with cybersecurity company Hacken said they found a trove of political fundraising and old voter data on a network-attached storage device on an open internet a Democratic campaign consulting firm called Rice Consulting apparently left names, phone numbers, emails, addresses, and companies of political donors on an open internet. Hacken said it also found uncrypted spreadsheets full of credentials to databases of voter data dating up to 2015. Wow. <laughs> There's a lot there. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: like you said at the top, not great. Um, the Hacken one is really, really interesting to me only because we – Got a tip about this and called up Rice Consulting ourselves yeah. to to you know check like hey we know the cybersecurity company reached out to you did you do anything about it and the response that Zaid Zurbaji, our reporter who covered this got back was there's nobody here that can help you with anything and they hung up <laughs> on us so not <laughs> That's great awesome. not not great um, sweet so yeah,
1: I have a question what state was only 150 dollars.
0: Uh, I'm not sure that wasn't part of that report okay. the, the, the reason why that one didn't ring so uh frightening to me was that a lot of the voter data that was put out there on the dark web it's kind of public it, anyway, yeah right? it's public information yeah. so it's somebody that's just looking to make a buck uh, off of of, of scamming nothing really of scamming there? hackers right yeah. well the, I mean there might be it, it's not it depends on what states release, and I don't know. I'm guessing the people that put this on the dark web put the higher-priced databases yeah. aligned with states that don't always release this information. Um, no, it's it's not great from either perspective if you are using the cloud protect your stuff. <laughs> don't make it public. Don't make it public. Like, look, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, the, the, those are probably the cloud providers that you are all using out there. They have tools that are very easy to use that make this like uh, a thing you don't have to think about. It's it's a couple check boxes. There was a great presentation on... <laughs> Uh, there was a great presentation at CyberTalks from Eric Brandwine, who's the deputy CISO of AWS. And he got up there and said, basically, we've heard all of you talking about security and, and trying to, you know, fit a round peg in a square hole. So we just decided we're just going to give you all of it in security by design. We're We're going to make this easy for you to protect, and you're not going to have to worry about it. Like the, the, the big companies get it, so please pay attention to the way that you are setting it up. And I guarantee you, it is not that hard to secure your databases on cloud instances. You can do it. I believe in all of you out
1: there. Yeah, we'll still be talking about this in three or four years. I,
0: I'm, I'm sure. I'm, I uh, absolutely. That's depressing, but you're probably right. So Lawfare, a popular national security blog, was hit with a persistent DDoS attack last week that led Susan Hennessy, the site's editor, to tell us that she wished the hackers would just knock it off. Uh, she told us that previous attacks have taken the site offline for longer periods, but we now have more sophisticated defenses in place, so size doesn't necessarily correlate to impact. The attack began last Wednesday afternoon and persisted for a few days as hackers and amplified their efforts in response to defensive measures. Jen, interesting angle for the attackers to go after national security blogs.
1: I think hackers are going to go after anyone that says that their data is protected, right? And I think now by saying they should knock it off, I'm guessing that um, people are going to go after her a little bit more. But yeah. I mean, I don't know if you recall um, Virginia Tech. Um, someone, their computer science department came out and said that they were like, the best at this, and immediately got hacked. Right, people went right
0: <laughs> that, after them. Right, well, I mean, there are protections against this, especially for media outlets. There, I, I believe, Cloudflare is a big one that does this. Google, I believe, in response to the fact that when the Mirai botnet was being formed, the the guy in charge of the Mirai botnet took down Brian Krebs's site for a while, and then. Um, Google helped Krebs out with giving him free DDoS protection. And I think Google has opened that up free for anybody that wants to use it. So between Google, between Cloudflare, and I'm sure a host of other companies that can offer you DDoS protection, I mean, if you're writing about this stuff, you need to be thinking about that.
1: Yes, For sure. Again, we'll still be talking about this in four years. uh, Look, I mean, DDoS attacks,
0: (laughs) if we're going to have networked infrastructure and an internet, we're going to have somebody that tries to take that traffic and weaponizes it. So, yeah, we are going to be talking about this stuff, but uh, there are definitely protections out there that people can take.
1: So Facebook is facing the first official financial consequence Of its Cambridge Analytical Data Scandal, the UK Information Commissioner's Office announced on Thursday that it's fining Facebook 500,000 euros for serious breaches of its data protection law. Since the issue was reported in March, it isn't subject to the much higher penalties made possible by GDPR, which went into effect in May. That's kind of interesting. Um, So... They kind of
0: got the Equifax treatment, yeah. Yeah, they, Equifax got the same fine because Equifax's data breach was under this 1998 law. Yeah. Um, so I think that Facebook is kind of just thanking lucky. its lucky stars yeah. here because they are under scrutiny for the, uh, the, the token mishap that we've talked about in previous w- weeks where – Already the Irish uh, Data Protection Commission has said that they are looking into this and that there's probably going to be fines associated. And Facebook might be looking at a $1.6 billion fine like for that. It. So that's, that, that's obviously not uh, what I think equates to about 665000 U.S. dollars, which I think Gizmodo did a great story that that fine is like not even an hour of Facebook's revenue. So, I, I mean, I, I don't think Facebook is, is worried too much about this. I think that Facebook's worried about the incoming GDPR fine from the, the token thing. And that's, that's going to be a real problem.
1: I can't wait to see that.
0: So cybersecurity researchers have uncovered remote access tools linked to an infamous Vietnamese hacking group with a history of targeting government organizations and intellectual property-rich companies. Analysts with silence say that while investigating a cybersecurity incident last year, they found multiple custom backdoors used by the cyber espionage outfit known as APT32 or Ocean Lotus Group. The hackers used command and control protocols that were tailored to their targets and that supported multiple network communication methods. The group has had a busy 18 months apparently stealing research from a leaked national security agency hacking tool and used that to steal a transcript of a conversation between President Trump and Rodrigo Duterte. Jen, these guys are just (laughs) so, so interesting to me in that they seem to be a— Small. Obviously, Vietnam is a smaller company, but they—they're they're out here. They—they're out here on the elite level when it comes to uh, APT threats and nation-state threats.
1: I mean, they are, and they're just doing interesting things, right? I mean, just the conversation between Trump um, and Rodrigo—I think is just really interesting.
0: Yeah. uh, They know how to, like,
1: splash headlines.
0: And this—my guess would be that this is, like, Vietnam's equivalent of the NSA Mm -hmm. because they don't seem to be a malicious actor in the idea of, like, what North Korea is doing or what Iran is doing. Like, this is stuff done to collect information for Vietnam politically. Like, this is— nation-state espionage, which is, <laughs> we see it day in and day out. But it's just very, very interesting to me that they seem to be one of the more sophisticated second-tier countries in in the world. A, a second-tier as far as uh, economy is concerned, but a first-tier as far as using elite tools. So yeah. I, I love covering this group, and this is so, so interesting to me.
1: Definitely. So experts are advocating for MITRE's ATT&CK Framework as the default way to standardize how organizations talk about cyber threat groups and their tactics, techniques, and procedures. MITRE began developing ATT&CK, which stands for Adversarial Tactics, Techniques, and Common Knowledge. In 2013, and the federally funded nonprofit group says the framework has since ballooned into a popular way for people performing different jobs in cybersecurity to speak the same language. At a MITRE conference on Tuesday, attack advocates said sharing threat intelligence can be disorganized and inefficient, but that the framework fills the gap. So that's kind of interesting.
0: So this was one of the events this week, uh, attack Con out at MITRE, and it really—it's it, funny. It was described to us as really just a badass spreadsheet, which I think is the first time that those two words have ever appeared next to one another in the English language. But it's. Really interesting that this has taken on a life of its own, because, look, we talk about information sharing so much and how there is always a disconnect in that there are a lot of firms and a lot of companies, not just cybersecurity companies, just companies in general, that when they are facing threats, they don't know how to communicate with one another, or there's just a problem in getting the right information to the right people. So now if we have everybody rallying around this framework, that's a good thing. Like yeah. that can only be a good thing that we've, okay, we are set a standard here. Yeah. And this is the way that we are going to communicate with it. And if everybody is comfortable with that standard and they're happy with that standard, that's, that's a good thing. You know, it, it's really impressive to me they gave attendees like a flag almost that has the matrices of this framework. Up to post, obviously, in offices and stuff like that. But we were waving it around our newsroom like it was a soccer flag almost yeah. because that's how big it was. And that was so funny to me that it wasn't just a pamphlet. It's like this flag that they want people to wave around inside industry to be like, this is how we should be talking to one another.
1: Is this the program we were, the MITRE's program that we were talking about like a month ago that wasn't funded well enough?
0: So... No, I believe that is the CVE program, and okay. that has more to deal with how they rank the critical bugs Got that, that okay. come. So when you see, like, CVE 2018 10333 or w- whatever, and then you see them have, like, an 8.6 on a, on a rating that talks about the uh, severity of the bug, that's Got a it. different MITRE okay. program. This This has more of just a... Literally, again, that badass spreadsheet phrase is in my head. It is this large spreadsheet that says, okay, this is the type of attack we're seeing. This is what it's doing with our data. This is what it's doing with our infrastructure. And and sort of parsing it out that way and sharing information that way. People like it. I mean, this isn't just a, a Beltway thing. There were people from, I believe, Goldman Sachs and Bank of America and GE over at MITRE kind of saying, this has been fantastic for us and has helped us communicate Uh, all the things that we're talking about when it comes to threats. That's awesome. So to our funding fast round, two companies that have been funded over the past two weeks. One uh, is White Source, a company that helps organizations that use open source code keep track of possible security gaps. They raised 35 million in a Series C round. That platform draws from a database of open source repositories and alerts customers if they are using components that have unpatched bugs. And earlier this week, Arctic Wolf Networks announced that it has raised $45 million in a Series C round. The company sells its SOC as a service platform, which is essentially a cloud-based security operations center. The offering gives customers access to to Arctic Wolf's AI-driven threat detection platform, as well as its, quote, concierge security engineers. Arctic Wolf says that building a SOC from scratch is cost-prohibited and argues that this approach is much more economical than building one yourself. The CEO says the new funding is going to go towards further developing their vulnerability assessment and endpoint detection platforms and response capabilities as well. So Jen, what do you think of these two companies?
1: So they're both solving actually really important problems. I, I mean, the Arctic Wolf is totally right. The sock from scratch is is not cost friendly, um, and White Source is solving that big problem of all those open source things that we use that have bugs right. and we don't know it.
0: Right. Arctic Wolf is really really interesting to me because of that sock as a service yeah. program, especially on um, the small and medium business side. I, I go back to the interview that we did with Vince Chrysler of yeah. Darkcube and talking about how you translate the message of why this is so important for small and medium businesses. Small and medium businesses do not have the funds to stand up their own security operations center or a really functioning security operations center might be more than, than the company size itself. You're suddenly doubling your headcount and you're sinking so much money into this. So, I mean... So, Arctic Wolf's solving a problem for small and medium businesses by giving them this sock as a service platform. So, I think that that's really, really cool. And I think that they're a really interesting company yeah. that um, is, is definitely solving a problem. And I think there.
1: the next thing we're going to see is, is Cyber Ranges becoming really popular. Actually, that's, um, I was in Canada. Um, we were getting ready to kick off. Um, Raytheon Canada is sponsoring a competition in Alberta, Canada, which is, again, why I was there. Um, that's going to be about building a cyber range for all the critical infrastructure that's in Canada.
0: Yeah, I see more and more of them popping up. And I think that, again, that is really interesting in that, look, we need more people that are breaking stuff yeah. in a in a sandbox and sort of figuring out how this stuff can break before it breaks in real life. And we're dealing with very big, very, very <laughs> critical problems. All right, and with that, we will move to our interview with Ron Gula. Great chat about what he is seeing in the marketplace and some further insight on some of the big stories we just talked about. Check it out. Okay, today we have joining us Ron Gula, the president and co-founder of Gula Tech Ventures. Ron has expertise on both the public side, the private side, has been in this for decades. Ron, thanks for joining us.
2: Go cyber. Glad to be here. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so, going back on those decades that you have been in this industry, how has the landscape changed since you first got involved?
2: There's been a number of, of big changes that we've seen. When we first started, you know, IT was sort of like the audiovisual club, this kind of thing that people kind of got made fun of for being a geek. And now you know, IT's in the, in the boardroom. And, and the biggest thing I've seen change is that we've got specialization. We've now got you know, offensive cyber people working for the DOD people doing audits in small hospitals and people just learning, you know, network forensics and getting jobs in just a couple of months. So the industry has really, really moved and become, you know, on par with you know, being a lawyer, being a pilot, being an architect.
0: So in terms of the companies that you are investing in and the way that things are changing like that, what has really struck you as one of the most innovative things that you've seen in the past, I must say, three years that you think that is a definite hot-button topic or definite hot-button issue that is worth a company devoting resources to and you devoting to put resources into that company?
2: So it, it's innovation is a really interesting thing to look at across cyber because we've had technological innovation. We've had, you know, virtualization, we've had mobility, we have moving to the cloud. But then we also have, you know, sort of who started out with cybersecurity, you know, the big banks, the DoD, all the way down to like my, my, my dentist office. So you can innovate and solve like basic cyber hygiene for like a small office. And you can also innovate and, you know, help the DoD or a big bank figure out, are they spending their money wisely or are they even recruiting? So innovation is all over the place. Um, if I'm just gonna pick one, you know, which is hard to do with the number of investments we've done, you know, there's a company called Cybrary that does training, free cyber training. Um, They've really changed the way you can learn cybersecurity, And they actually had an article published recently where a a young woman who was a mechanic, again, nothing wrong with being a mechanic, but she was able to learn a cyber trade and get a job within three months. That's actually a really innovative thing.
1: So we talked a couple weeks ago about about Cyfe that you invested in. Tell us more about that.
2: Yeah, so there's a company called Scythe. Um, it is a red team company that helps red teams behave like modern threats. And you know, I'm a pen tester, we've interviewed pen testers here, and if you said, how long is a pen test? You might just say flippantly, oh, it's, it could be a day, an hour, it could be a weekend. A lot of people confuse an audit with a pen test. But if you say, well, how long does a typical, you know, compromise last? People will say, well, it could be months, if not if not years. And then we go, well, why aren't we doing pen tests kind of like that? And it's because most pen tests, there's a limited number of smart people out there who can run, you know, Python and Metasploit and all the different tools you need to do. But if you want to actually maintain persistence, right, if we talk about, you know, Rob Joyce and how we talked about how TAO, um, you know, would do persistence and things like that, Um, how do we emulate that? Because that's the real threat that's coming at us, right? So Scythe makes it easy for people to, once they get in, stay in and actually not just stay in by making IT look bad but actually doing scenarios that you know a CIO or a CISO can use to show that there's big flaws in a people process or technology and um, and, and kind of show that in a perform- professional manner. So that's what Site's all about.
0: So with Scythe I know the founder uh, Bryson yeah. has some, Bryson Board has some background in pen testing and malware writing and engineering and all that high level stuff, you also have that background. So I'm wondering what are some of the strategies that you learned during your times at the NSA or your times doing penetration testing and how did those experiences lead to where your businesses have grown?
2: Yeah. So when I when I started out doing a penetration testing, you know we didn't have CISPA, we didn't have certified ethical hacking, you kind of had to learn as 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 you went. So a lot of times the pen testers back in the in the mid nineties You know, we would have a couple. You know, nobody called them zero days. You know, back then you'd have a couple new new exploits, and and you might use that to, to get in. It wasn't as bad as it is now. We had so much enumerization of what was on the network. You could just pick anything that was unpatched and 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 exploit it. So so I thought when I was doing pen testing back then that if I broke into an admin's computer and pointed out all the stuff that they hadn't fixed yet, that I was somehow helping. And and of course, if I told that admin's boss or their budget officer that these processes were, I thought I was also helping, right? So being able to break in and demonstrate that there was a flaw is a lot different than communicating to, to other people. So what I learned back then was how you deliver that message and who you deliver it to can be hurtful, it can also be helpful. It's one of the big reasons that motivated me to do Tenable Network Security. So when you look at somebody like Bryson, he's not taking on the cyber exposure that Tenable's doing, he's taking on this, how do you show how do you enable a red team to really emulate a threat so you can have a CISO or CISO, you know, change a policy or a process or a technology?
1: So what took you from, you know, Pentester at NSA to Tenable to now Gula Tech, um, and sort of what's your goal with Gula Tech? Yeah,
2: so, so at Gula Tech, it's, it's uh, you know, my wife and I run that. We're, our, our focus is our companies, is uh, cyber education, and then trying to be helpful to politicians, and whether at the state or federal level, on on cyber policy, which could be, you know, cyber stuff like perhaps what the president's doing, all the way down to how do we just grow more cyber companies, and get more people into cyber. Um, a lot of what we try to do from a company point of view is focused on web, threat, and 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 hygiene, and we think that there's different opportunities in the market to move people forward a number of different ways. For example, red taming, what we just talked about with uh, Scythe and Cyber, which I mentioned, uh, mentioned earlier.
1: So you mentioned politics. So what are your thoughts on the Trump administration's recent move to pro- project a tougher stance in cyberspace?
2: So I think cyber is going the same way that the nuclear... Uh, industry as one. In other words, we're going to have mutual surge destruction and, 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 and with nuclear. With cyber it's going to be something really similar. It's, it's um, you know the. US right now has more infrastructure than other companies, but if you fa- or other countries, but if you fast forward five, six, seven years, we're going to be a very interconnected type of, of, uh, of, of world much more than we are so today. Um, just trying to figure out who's on Amazon, who's on Google Cloud, who's on this Telco, who's going through this ASN. It's really really hard to do. So I think coming out now and just being honest and saying, look, we we look out, we're doing offense. Not only does it send a message to our potential adversaries in cyberspace, also if you look at, you know, organized crime, the drug cartel, other types of 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 crime, you know, it's 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 conceivable that somebody's rethinking you know, hey, the next Silk Road could be, you know, infused with implants from the CIA or the NSA. And it's, you know, it's good to put that message out there.
0: So I'm interested to hear your opinion on the deterrence that has been sort of part and parcel with the cybersecurity strategy under the Trump administration. We've seen a lot of indictments come against Chinese hackers, Russian hackers, North Korean hackers. and. I've got some mixed opinions in the people that I've talked to as to whether this is a sound strategy because a lot of these people that have been charged are probably never going to be arrested. So I'm wondering from your eyes, do you think that that is a sound strategy in indicting these people or do you think it's sort of a waste of time because we're never going to have them actually see a jail cell?
2: So, so clearly for individuals who are outside of a government organization, that process is very useful and we have had some indictments, right? There's a lot of media about getting hackers, and I'm saying the word hackers, people who are not state-sponsored. Um, out so that's a good motion. The reality is, though, a lot of times what a state does is not much different than what a what a, a hacker does. It's just a little bit different. And I really believe only the U.S. government has the resources to actually name somebody and, and back it up. Here's the evidence. I mean, if you read some of the things about how, uh, like the war driving was done. There's a there was a Wi-Fi case in Europe where the Russians were going around. There's there's here's the pictures. Here's their Wi-Fi case. It, it's 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 very the evidence is is, is overwhelming. Um, so, so the question is, is anything going to happen? I think it's positioning, it's posturing, it definitely burns operations, and that's very useful in cyberspace, right? If you, you know, we talk about, if you can change outbound firewall rules, it might make it harder for a botnet to operate in your environment. Well, I think when you out an operation like this, you might not get an indictment, but you're probably going to burn an operation. Now, the corollary to this is what happens if they start doing this to, to our soldiers and our intelligence officers? Now, on one hand, it's it's a great way to burn an intelligence operation. Um, On the other hand, it could also be fake news, right? It's pretty easy to figure out on LinkedIn who's working where and perhaps accuse somebody of so-and-so hacked here a certain day from a certain IP address. So I think it's it's, uh, potentially that we will see some blowback.
0: So speaking of blowback, there's a really popular story that's been going around the story from Bloomberg about possible... Uh, hardware implants from China on supermicro boards. I'm kind of interested in your opinion on this story because we talked about this story last week, and it has since taken two or three or four different turns. So I'm wondering your opinions on what has been out there so far and whether this is something that you know just this story needs to be worried about and the overall concept of supply chain attacks. Yeah. How how big is that in your eyes?
2: So this is a case it's a lot like ufos i'm a ufo buff right if you're going to say that i've seen a ufo you need to have overwhelming evidence that you saw a UFO. maybe a picture a video then a couple people there that sort of thing well in this case i have not talked to anybody who said off the record on the record how do you find one of these things how do you look at one of these things if you compare this disclosure to a typical vulnerability where there's a search team disclosing hey this is what you need to look for um hey here's a technique i found to 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 find this um i'm not seeing any of that motion we haven't seen one cert organization come out and say oh check for this kind of stuff we haven't seen any type of you know vulnerability scanning vendor say hey here's a way to query a thing here's an ioc here's perhaps some network traffic associated with this thing we've seen nothing and if you look at this in the world of iocs where it's about um hidden malware and you know zero day malware There's typically a lot of people sharing information on this kind of stuff. Now, granted, sniffing networks and scanning systems is a lot different than opening up a motherboard and physically inspecting it, but we actually went through this as an industry a couple of years ago, right? We had Dell and a variety of other out-of-band management systems go through a series of vulnerable disclosures, and this is something that this chip is purported to, to talk the underlying, there's another, there's basically another operating system underneath the operating system in your data centers, and that's kind of where this chip is purported to operate
0: so let's talk about it from the big picture then a little bit more on the supply chain side because look this supply chain has been a problem it's always been a problem to be worried about what about this story sort of rings true or, or throws up warning signs to be like okay the facts of this story might be uh, a little muddled but what's the lesson that we can take from this story
2: yeah so there's a couple lessons, right? So a lot of it, doing this type of analysis, finding a motherboard and seeing if it's been tampered with is a really difficult thing to do. Some of the national labs do it. I think the intelligence agencies can do it. This is not the kind of thing you can take a SANS class on and get certified overnight. Now there are companies, there's one here in, in Virginia, I'm not an investor, but PFP Cyber, uh-huh. they actually have this tool. You can touch the motherboard while it's running and you can see if it's somehow been tampered with. It's it's wow. quite It's quite amazing, right? Now the one flaw with that is you have to have a baseline, right? So if the first super micro motherboard you got had this chip implant on it, maybe that's a bad day for you, and that's one of the problems with baseline and anomaly detection, right? But but from a engineer, double E point, this is an amazing tool, and I've never seen anything out there uh, out there like it. But at the same time, you know, when you think about supply chain, what are the risks? I mean, my people are a supply chain. I get this never ending list of people who come work for me. All of my IT vendors, whether I outsource to the cloud. or or I buy software from Apple, that's a supply chain for for me. Um, What do I worry about that? And, you know, so I think this this incident, it's also a good thing for the uh, market of third-party risk vendors like uh, CyberGRX, Security Scorecard, um, uh, Risk Recon, you know, some of the new, and I'm not associated with these people, I don't have investments in them or anything. I think it's generally a good thing because the amount of dependency we have for any corporation, it's incredibly high. So you need some level of automation to track all this stuff and see what's good and what's bad. Um, this hardware thing kind of throws that into sharp relief, but um, you know, I think it's going to be generally a good idea for people to understand what they're dependent upon.
1: So let's jump into our other favorite topic: topic um, election security. So tell us what you think should be done, and, and sort of what you're seeing.
2: Well, we talked about uh, you know politics a little bit, and and the recent cyber strategy that came out of the White House you know, not only did they talk about offense, which got a lot of headlines, but they also made election security another critical infrastructure. And and the thing I like to point out is previously DHS had 16 areas, right? Dams, the IT industry. Uh And 16 is a nice four-by-four four that you can fit on a website or a PowerPoint. But now when we had election security, you, know, you get to 17. So I'm imagining people doing talks about critical infrastructure all over the com- country, changing their websites and changing their PowerPoints right now. <laughs> um, but I do think it's good to have DHS focus on that. And uh, you know, DHS does a lot in this area. They fund the multi-state ISAC. Uh, the Center for Internet Security does a lot of great work in that area, and that's, that's really good. What I think is interesting, though, if you think about this, we've talked about implants and and things like that, um, you know, if I'm going to modify an election, everybody imagine imagines hacking into a voting booth and changing my vote, or maybe changing the tallies, you know, as as it's going up to the state capitol or whatever election headquarters is. I actually think if you're going to modify an election, you're going to start a lot earlier. You're going to start picking off candidates that are threats, you know, to your right. um, to your agenda. So think about the typical cyber hygiene we all have. If either of you are running for senator in Virginia. Um, you know, you're going to be be scrutinized. It's not above a nation state to go into your house, to go into your social media, to go into plant stuff, find stuff, and take you out of the race. So every time I see a political candidate who's outed in the news for having an affair or having something like that, tax evasion, you know, whatever it is, I'm imagining that some other party, not generally the opposing party, I'm thinking about external influence, is really having a hand in that.
0: Switching back to your startup concentration, what is the process? at Gula tech Adventures for improving your clients' businesses? What's the most common thing that they're lacking that you provide?
2: Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it's interesting. The last few years at Tenable, we got involved in angel investing. And now that we're doing this full-time, we've actually gone from angel investments, which are smaller in denomination, to actually price rounds, Series A, Series C, where we're raising more money. For example, Scythe was a $3 million raise. And whereas we have other companies that have raised a, a fraction mm-hmm. of that. And so the reality is, is when you're... When you're two or three or four people and you're pre-customer, you know, even pre-website in some cases, your needs are a lot different than perhaps a company that is, you know, on their 20th, you know, salesperson that that, that they've hired. So what what we try to do is bring all of our experience to that. Like so having brought two, maybe four or five products to market, but two companies, Network Security Wizards and Tenable, um, we've been through all these stages. So typically when we meet with somebody I kind of have my agenda of what the number one or number two strategic thing that needs to be working on. Um, you know, I'm always trying to do introductions. I'm always trying to name drop, you know, people on, on, on interviews, you know. So for example, Bandura, uh-huh. you're going to talk to them in a minute, right? So that's, hey, I've, I've, I've helped, right? In, in some cases, that's all companies need is just a little push to get a little bit more successful. In other cases, maybe it's a CEO search. In other cases, maybe it's hey, we're looking for I, like I, there's an investment that um, just concluded. We can't talk about it just yet, but they're bringing in a chief product officer, and my sort of, of of feedback to this company is you need more security DNA in this particular company, and they're bringing in a chief product officer from a great you know cyber background. Um, so. I try not to like put everybody on the tenable track and try to get tenable done in like 20 months that that's <laughs> impossible but it's sort of like and then it also goes back into what are the goals of the individuals you know a lot of times if you have a company it's a first time ceo they just want to get an acquisition under their belt get a name for themselves you know have a success that's a lot different than building a ginormous company and um you know so we try to bring all that ability to to meet with people
1: so um bill proud asap louie always tells me that the biggest challenge for cybersecurity companies is that chief product officer what are you sort of seeing is the sort of the biggest challenges you look through your portfolio and and other companies that you see
2: yeah so my my demo that i like is somebody who's been dod or intelligence community Mm -hmm. has done some services work has done some consulting has done you know government services commercial services and then had that eureka moment of not only do i want to be an entrepreneur but i've got an idea to solve a problem so once you have that the question is just, if you believe in that problem case, it's just a, it's kind of a, almost an academic exercise of doing the website, how do we talk about this, how do we recruit people? But if you believe so strongly in that problem, a lot of those things are a lot easier to do. And the type of companies we don't invest in are when they don't have that eureka moment. If somebody doesn't have a strong belief about how they're going to change the world, um, you know, I don't really want to work with them. Because it's just about, nobody needs a slightly better firewall or a slightly better antivirus. They need something that changes the way people do business. So, for example, uh, a Mach 37 company, Huntress, they're trying to bring endpoint nation-state monitoring to the SMB. The world, you, you, you could argue, the world doesn't need another antivirus, but that's a market that is completely underserved um, and underwhelmed and actually causes, it it, it it interrupts the IT outsourcing model when you have um, you know breaches that get around antivirus. So I love stuff like that.
0: So speaking of SMB and we had Vince Chrysler in here that was also focused uh, on SMB's with Dark Cube and you were talking earlier about how you're seeing like your dentist office change mm-hmm. cybersecurity wise. Talk to me a little bit about what you're seeing at the SMB level because I yep. think that that is so important because mm-hmm. a lot of our PII is floating through small and medium businesses so the Fortune 500 that you know all of these companies uh, want to go after, that's all well and good but I think that they have enterprises mm-hmm. that are well ahead of the curve when it comes to protecting the things that they hold dear. Small and medium businesses, they aren't looking at that yet, or maybe they are. Like, what are you seeing out there? Yeah,
2: it so that? it's it's interesting to contrast the enterprise with the SMB because the enterprise has teams and budgets, and there's yet they still ask the question, how do we get hacked? What could we do more? In SMB, there's no team, there's no budget, and they just assume that because they have an antivirus or because they've outsourced IT that they're, that they're good. So So how do we fix that? Um, a lot of what we're doing at the, at the SMB level, just from a messaging point of view, is I try to tell people, embrace the cloud. And you, you'd be surprised how many small SMBs still have an email server or still have, you, you know, even in the day of Google and, 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 and Outlook. So the more people can use the cloud, the better off they are. Um, the more they can use the hardened systems, iPads, uh, you know, uh, um Microsoft uh, surfaces, for example, self-updating. You know, that's th- those. If you're doing those two things right there, it's really hard to get infected with with antivirus and stuff like that. Now, it still doesn't mean your admin at your dentist office is selling your patient records. That's a completely different process right. than, than than cyber hygiene. Um, but then the third big part of that is the IT managers, and you know, there's a lot of there's like 10,000 IT management outsourcing companies out there. Their big message is cost and availability, right? If, I, if you ask me to help you out with your IT, you're sort to give me access to everything, all your data, the uptime and whatnot. So they tend to go at scale. It's, it's all about controlling costs and doing scale. It's not about, they don't, in their business model, they cannot fit in something like a CrowdStrike or a SIM or a DLP, or a data uh, a leakage prevention tool. So they just don't, they don't go there. So what can we do? We need to go there with, with really disruptive technolo- techniques. So if you talk about Darkcube, for example, um, I don't think Vince reminds me talking about his business model, he's got a model right now to make the MSPs look like heroes. And just to okay. reiterate with people, when I say MSP, I'm not talking about managed security service providers, I'm talking about managed service providers. Anytime you can make those people look like a hero and save them money, that's a good deal. Now, without throwing the antivirus industry under, uh, under the bus, a bad day for an MSP is when their chosen antivirus system has a bypass. Now I've got to put an expensive engineer on site, I've got to go to the doctor's office, I've got to apologize, hey, you've got malware on your computer, you end up costing the MSP money. So any type of solution, perhaps like Huntress, perhaps like Dark Cube, that gives an MSP the ability to leap into action and look like a superhero in front of their customer, that's a really good model for that industry.
0: Interesting. So. On to curiosity, we close out our interviews with a very random question, and you specified that you were a UFO buff. So I want to hear what your favorite UFO conspiracy theory is. Oh,
2: uh, favorite UFO conspiracy theory is that everything that you see is actually a government project. It's
0: everything? Just, everything.
2: <laughs> well, every every sighting. It's actually oh, a okay. disin- yeah. like. Yeah. So like, it's disinformation. Yeah. So so I grew up in upstate New York. And if you guys have seen Top Gun, the okay. type of airplane that Tom Cruise flew was an F Fourteen. There's another airplane the Air Force has called an FB One Eleven. The same design. It's just bigger. Carries tactical nuclear weapons. When this thing flies, and it does lights the afterburners. There's a, a, a visibility of this a, almost like like half a mile behind the airplane, and I think that's responsible for a lot of UFO sightings. And if you actually look at a lot of uh, the history that's been disclosed, you'll see that there's been programs, uh, you know, talking about this kind of stuff. I tend to believe that. I don't know that. I think it's. I think it's interesting. Um, but to me, I'm disappointed that um, not only did the X Files go so badly, that there there isn't more evidence for UFOs just out there, given the number of cameras that we have and the number of of uh, right. journalists that are out there. But yes, I'm a, I am a fan of the UFOs.
0: Interesting, yeah. Ron. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you.
1: Thanks again to Ron for the chat. I really enjoyed the interview.
0: Definitely some great insight. Ron's a great guy, and I really appreciate him taking some time out to talk to us. And that will do it for us this week. Been a long one, but really appreciate you hanging with us as we went through two weeks' worth of news. We'll be back next week to do it all again.
1: As always, stay curious.